0: And on this
1: episode, we have, we have some dangerous food, we have a poison breakfast, we have a very dangerous dinner, and weirdly, we have Lemony Stick It and pasta Puttanesca, but it's not a series of unfortunate <gasps> oh my events!
0: Oh how did I not even put that together?
1: <laughs> so, enjoy, once again, the weird melding of minds that me and Emily have done, unconsciously, because we are one. <laughs>
0: So, oh, Emily, what are you infatuated with this week? I am infatuated with Poison for Breakfast <gasps> Yay! by Lemony Snicket. I've been waiting for this. So have I. <laughs> so, this came out toward the end of 2021 and is a glorious novella written by Daniel Handler under his pseudonym, Lemony Snicket. I'm sure our listeners are aware of this, but I'll explain it anyway. Lemony Snicket is not only a pseudonym, but it's a character. Mm -hmm. He's the narrator of, among other books, a series of unfortunate events. This book is not in that series, but he does vaguely allude to the fact that he is like a writer Mm. and researcher of unfortunate subjects. He does also reference a lost love who keen unfortunate events readers like myself will know as Beatrice Beatrice. Baudelaire. Yeah. But anyway, this is not about the (laughs) Baudelaire's. This book begins when Lemony Snicket finds a note passed under his door which simply reads, you had poison for breakfast. From there, Snicket retraces all of the ingredients in his breakfast to try and work out which one has this poison in. And it's also a philosophical book because for each ingredient he goes on a bit of a tangent, a bit of a reflection, as you would if you were. That had just been told that you were going to die, like, imminently. (laughs) So to follow that up and to kind of set the tone, I'm going to read the author's note, which begins the book.
1: I'm so excited for this. I feel like this is going to be the most me book out of all the books that you are infatuated with.
0: Probably. Yeah, (laughs) probably. (laughs) Dear reader, are you confused? Do you have any idea what is going on? Of course you are, and of course you don't. This book is about bewilderment, a word here which means not having the faintest idea what is going on at any given time. It is also something of a murder mystery in which a dreadful crime is investigated in the hopes of finding out what happened to the poor murdered victim. The person investigating is me. So was the poor murdered victim. The clues in this investigation include a suspicious stranger, an upsetting supermarket, the strange way literature is made, painful embarrassment, long songs, improperly prepared eggs and other things which I happen to think are important. Some people might call Poison for Breakfast a book of philosophy, and hardly anyone likes a book of philosophy. When a person begins to investigate this bewildering world and their own inevitable death, they begin to suffer from a deeply troubling kind of bewilderment experienced by anyone foolish enough to love literature. Unless you are that sort of person, I recommend reading something else entirely. With all due respect, Lemony Snicket.
1: I like that he always tries to make you not read the book.
0: I know. (laughs) And yeah, I should say, like, if you are a plot lover, this is not... Like, just take his advice. It isn't the book for you, but it is fantastic. Because it's such a tiny book, that's really all I'm going to say to set it up. Today, I'm basically just going to read things out, out of context, the hope that anyone who hasn't read any Snicket will want to because he is without a doubt one of my favourite writers because of his very distinctive style. Yeah, I don't have a lot of my own words today but like a lot of his. (laughs) I'm so here for it. I love Lemony Snicket. Same. So I thought I would begin with the first chapter as it shows us the majority of the themes of this book and it's like a good scene set in one before i go into like some wildly out of context <laughs> passages and cool. um, so this is the beginning of chapter one Oh, well, there's also little illustrations throughout the book which are really cute love that yeah. it's so tiny it's such a tiny little <laughs> book and it just has it's just so cute It has skulls all over it and a poison bottle, but it's
1: cute. It is cute. And like, because you are tiny, it looks like a normal size book.
0: (laughs) This morning I had poison for breakfast. This book is about bewilderment, a word which here means the feeling of being bewildered. And bewildered is a word which here means you don't have any idea what is happening. And you is a word which doesn't just mean you, it means everyone. Everyone. You have no idea what is happening, and nobody you know has any idea what is happening, and of course there are all the people you don't know, which is most of the people in the world, and they don't know what is happening either, and of course I don't know what is happening, or I wouldn't have eaten poison for breakfast. Everything that happens in this book is true, by which I mean that it all really happened. The poison and the poems, the deadly cactus and the hypnotic musician, the chicken and the egg and the fatal finale, a phrase here which means there is death at the end of the story. But the story begins at breakfast, which I fixed myself, as I enjoy doing. It won't be necessary for you to remember what I had for breakfast, because I will keep mentioning it, but it was tea, with honey, a piece of toast, with cheese, one sliced pear, and an egg perfectly prepared. And all of it, as I have mentioned, I fixed myself, and ate all up while reading whatever I pleased. I've been fixing my own breakfast for many years, beginning one summer when I was quite small and I was with my family in a house we were borrowing. The house was on the shore of a lake which was quite large and quite cold and a small flock of geese would gather on the sand having loud conversations and making a mess. The geese will go away, the owner of the house told us, as long as you don't feed them. But the geese never went away, not all summer. In the morning I would wake up and go by myself to the kitchen. The early sun would shine on the lake, the ripples so shiny and sharp that they looked like knives. I read something once that describes the sea as all a case of knives and I have never forgotten it. It is a description I admire very much because it is so startling that you know no one else has thought of it before the author did and yet so perfectly clear that you wonder why you never thought of it yourself. All good writing is like this. It is why a favourite book feels like an old friend and a new acquaintance at the same time, and the reason a favourite author can be a familiar figure and a mysterious stranger all at once. Although I had not yet read All a Case of Knives when I was living next to the lake, I would sit and watch all the sharp and shiny bits of water outside the window as I waited for the toaster to do its work. At the time, all I liked for breakfast was a glass of juice and a single piece of toast with jam on it so I would pour my own juice and put two pieces of bread into the toaster. When they were ready, I would spread jam on one of the pieces and go out to the lake and feed the geese the other one. They loved the toast and they stayed all summer and no one ever knew why. I kept feeding them for two reasons. A, because I liked beating them, and it didn't seem fair to force the geese to look elsewhere for breakfast just because they were loud and had no bathroom of their own. And B, because I liked having a secret. And actually, as I write these two reasons, A and B, it seems to me that B is the more important one, and so B is actually A, the secret I liked having.
1: (sighs) (laughs) That, the irony here is that he has so perfectly put into words the feeling of when a writer puts something into words that you know that you want to express, but you've never seen it put into words perfectly, and then you see it put into words perfectly and it feels like that. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) And that's what he just described.
0: So. As you can see from that passage, Poison for Breakfast is actually about writing, <laughs> which is why I loved it so much. And most of my passages are about writing in some way, but the next two are slightly more focused on it. This is the first where Snicket has decided to visit his local tea shop, which is a theme for the episodes that we've <laughs> recorded today. Yes. As a cup of tea, as we all know, was part of his breakfast.
1: Indeed. <laughs> Mm. Every time that I hear "Lemony Snicket's it's right, and it makes me want to cry, and I don't know why. Same. It makes <laughs> me want to it cry. Feel, it's like it. It's not just because I read a series of unfortunate events when I was a child, but mm. I feel like it, it. Like it hurts my inner child. Yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Do you? Is it pronounced incomparable or incomparable? Because I feel like I switch between the two. I feel
1: like it should be incomparable. But is it incomparable. English people say incomparable. Okay, we'll go incomparable
0: incomparable (laughs) now. My tea shop was called Incomparable Tea, a name that has always confused me. The word incomparable simply means that you can't compare it to anything. And even though it's supposed to be a compliment, a way of saying something is so good that you can't think of anything else like it, it sounds more like a lie. Many compliments sound like lies, of course. Nothing will make you look for a mirror and comb quicker than hearing, your hair looks nice but the word incomparable particularly makes me suspicious because I am a writer and comparing things to other things is part of my occupation. Over the years I've learned to compare almost anything to almost anything else. I can compare the pencil I'm using to write these words and these words and these and these to my own life because it is sometimes sharp and sometimes dull and because it is getting shorter and shorter the more I use it and because even when I try to erase things, you can still see the marks they left behind. I can compare my mother to an apple because she spent some of her early days in a tree and because I would like her less if she were baked and sprinkled with cinnamon. I can compare sadness to an automobile because they can both run me over and I can compare happiness to an aardvark because they're both unusual to see early in the morning and I can compare the various teas for sale at incomparable tea to all sorts of things which means they're not really incomparable. There's a tea that tastes like freshly cut grass and a tea that has a scent like campfire smoke. There is a tea that, when brewing in hot water, opens up like a flower and one that dissolves into little threads like a lousy sweater. There are teas the colour of a dying fern and an angry tree and a thrilling storm and dung. The closer I got to the tea shop, the more excited I became. I've always admired any store that sells only one thing, because it promises delight, The way a person who spends eight years learning how to make cake will probably make you a good cake, but a person who spends eight years as an aviator and a tailor and a math tutor and a trainer of bears in the circus will probably kill you in a plane he is flying very badly while wearing a shirt that doesn't fit and fighting off an ill-behaved bear, all the while insisting that seven times six is harmonica. I was eager to see all the different kinds of tea, snug in jars and boxes and hens lined up on brightly painted shelves. I looked forward to sitting at one of the shop's little wooden tables, which always reminds me of square lily pads on an inviting pond, and to wait for the teapot to start steaming like a friendly volcano. The tea shop is run by a man who talks too much and his daughter who hardly talks at all, so you can direct all tea-related questions to the tea merchant of your choice, depending on whether or not you are in the mood for conversation. I'll stop it there. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> <laughs> lily pads yeah happiness is like an
0: aardvark because it's unusual to see earlier in the morning yeah i like when he's like can compare my mother to an apple because she spent her early years in a tree yeah i'm like what, what does that mean <laughs>
1: oh it's so good <laughs> i'm gonna use that aardvark thing
0: that's, that's going in the
1: book not my actual book, I wouldn't plagiarise. I mean the book of phrases I use in my daily life. Yeah.
0: <laughs> okay, so my next writing focus quote takes place after Snicket, rather surprisingly, it jumps into a lake at the end of the previous chapter. For reasons. <laughs> cool. It is said that there are three rules for writing a book. The first is to regularly add the element of surprise and I have never found this to be a difficult rule to follow, because life has so many surprises that the only real surprise in life is when nothing surprising happens. Perhaps you were surprised to read, at the end of the previous chapter, that I jumped into the cold and swirling water, which means I managed to follow the first rule of writing a book, but truth be told I was just as surprised to find myself plunging into the sea. Oh, I thought it was a lake. It's a sea. It was the sort of decision you make so quickly it doesn't even feel like you are deciding. Just that you have already decided. One moment I was standing on the rock, thinking of how if I were poisoned I might not have many more chances to swim here at this particular spot, and the next I was in the water. The second rule is to leave out certain things in the story. This rule is trickier to learn than the first, because while life is full of surprises, you can't leave any part of life out. Everything that happens to you happens to you. Often boring, sometimes exhausting and occasionally thrilling, every moment of life is unskippable. In a book, however, you can skip past any part you do not like, which is why all decent authors try not to have any of these parts in the books they write, but few authors manage it. Nearly every book has at least one part that sits on the page like a wet sock on the ground, with the reader stopping to look at it thinking, what is this doing here? This is why I left out the part where I removed most of my clothing before jumping into the sea, because no sensible reader is interested in things of that nature. If Little Red Riding Hood, the hero of an old folk tale, needed to use the bathroom while wandering through the forest to see her grandmother, that is her business, which is why just about all of the books about her leave out that part. If Oedipus, the hero of a famous play, had an itch he couldn't scratch and it really bothered him, that is not something we necessarily want to read about so it should happen off stage where we won't hear about it. And I can't find a good reason to tell you exactly what I was wearing or if it required unbuckling or unbuttoning or if I folded things neatly or just dropped them in a heap on the rocks by the shore, so I have followed the second rule of writing a book and left it out. Of course, there are some parts of a story you can't leave out or there is no story at all. I recently read of an old Japanese tale about a feudal lord who, for some reason, it was left out of the story, hates old people and so makes a rule that everyone over the age of 70 has to be brought to the mountains and abandoned there. One young man has an elderly mother but he cannot bear to leave her in the mountains and so hides her in the basement of their home. Soon afterward, some fierce enemies arrive and say that they will destroy the entire area unless the feudal lord can do three things. One, make a rope of ashes, two, pull a thread through a nine-sided jewel, and three, cause a drum to beat by itself. The feudal lord, of course, cannot do these things, but, the tale tells us, the mother can, and so everyone is saved, and the feudal lord decides he doesn't dislike old people after all. You can see at once that too much was left out of this story, and I was annoyed at whatever long-dead person had written it down without telling me how someone's mother managed to do the three seemingly impossible tasks of One, making a rope of ashes, two, pulling a thread through a nine-sided jewel, and three, causing a drum to beat by itself. If you leave this part out, I wanted to explain to this author, there is hardly any story at all, except for a vague lesson that we shouldn't hate old people, which all sensible readers know anyway. You can't hate old people, because if you are not an old person, you will become an old person, or die while trying to do so. So I will leave out the part about taking my clothes off. Not every stitch of clothing, mind you, but just enough to swim and be decent at the same time. But I will keep in the book how it feels to me to swim in open water, a phrase which here means not in a pool or a bathtub, but in a river or a lake or best of all, the ocean, because it is important to the story and philosophy of this book. I'll stop there.
1: I was thinking about that the other day actually Were you? that I've when I've been editing books before for people
0: mm-hmm.
1: it's really hard to get across that like you don't have to necessarily explain how one point gets to another point yeah because like you need to explain it to yourself when you're writing it but then you don't need, really need to read it yeah but I'm so bad for it I have such trouble like if I leave a chapter at one point I have trouble skipping ahead to the Mm -hmm. next important point. I'm like, what happens right after that? Because you
0: can't leave any of life out. I know. Yeah, no, I'm the same. That's one of my big things on redrafting is just cutting out bits where I'm like, oh, here's what happens between this and this. I'm like, we don't need to know that. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, that was a good passage. Relatable (laughs) relatable content. Yeah. So I have two more passages. The next one is about eggs. And I've included it purely because I love how many pages he decides to dedicate to eggs. Um, And I think this is my longest quote. (laughs) And for that, I will (laughs) apologise. Okay, here we go. I enjoy eating eggs. And eggs look so cheery on a breakfast plate that I cannot help but think that eggs enjoy being eaten. I've often thought that it would be pleasant to be a chicken. Because whenever I was in the mood for an egg, I could just sit down and make one for myself although I suppose wishing I was a chicken means wishing I was first an egg and I don't think I would enjoy breakfasting on my own childhood. It upsets some people to eat anything that comes from an animal, which is a good reason for not eating eggs. Another reason is being severely allergic to eggs, because, as I did not need to be reminded that morning, it is no fun to worry about death right after eating breakfast. Some people, however, say that they do not eat eggs because they do not like them. This is suspicious. Eggs are tremendously flexible and can be prepared in a variety of ways, all of which are different experiences in one's mouth. If you say you do not like eggs, it is saying you do not like books, or light, or wearing a bald gown. It means you simply have not found the right kind. My breakfast egg was perfectly prepared, as I have said, and there are five basic methods of preparing eggs. Each method has something of a trick to it, and it is useful to have a trick when learning to do something. I have memorised tricks for doing things I hardly ever get to do, just because the trick is so handy. I always remember the sentence, a rat in the house may eat the ice cream, for instance, as a trick for spelling the word arithmetic, by using the first letter in each word in the sentence. I have hardly any call to spell the word arithmetic, but when it happens, I am ready with the trick. Similarly, I have learned the trick for each basic egg preparation method and I went through them in my mind as I continued to walk. The first way eggs can be prepared, and the most popular, is scrambled. Scrambled eggs is a phrase which here means eggs taken out of their shell, mixed up and cooked in a pan. And the trick with scrambled eggs is never to eat them. Scrambled eggs are unreliable, a word which here means that you never know what scrambled eggs will be like, whether you make them yourself or convince someone else to make them for you. Scrambled eggs can be runny, a word as disgusting to read as it is to experience, or lumpy, as if they have been punched by a hammer or some deranged person. Scrambled eggs cool down very quickly, so they can be cold, and once you've eaten a bite of cold scrambled eggs it can take you a year to recover. But scrambled eggs also burn easily, so you may find something in your mouth that feels like the blazing sole of an old shoe. Scrambled eggs can make more than one of these mistakes, or even all at once, And the world knows this, which is why scrambled eggs often have other, more reliable things in them, such as cheese, or tomatoes, or oysters, or onions, so that scrambled eggs become much more delicious dishes, like covering up your ugly underwear with a handsome pair of slacks, all because scrambled eggs are so dangerously unreliable. I have a dear friend who once ordered scrambled eggs at a restaurant, despite my repeated warnings. They arrived at the table not at all to her liking, and she asked the cook to prepare them again, and then again, and again. The cook grew angry, I grew embarrassed, and my friends grew hungrier and hungrier, and all this could have been avoided if she had never uttered the words, scrambled, please. The second way eggs can be prepared is fried, and the trick to fried eggs is to remember the words of a great composer. The composer I am thinking of wrote music that is very slow and quiet, And once when asked about his method of composing music, he replied that he never moved the notes around. Not even a little bit, he was asked, and he said no, not even a little bit. I do not know what this means, not even a little bit, but to make fried eggs, put a little butter in a pan and place the pan on something very hot, such as a flame. When the butter melts, crack an egg open and dump the insides in, tossing the shell someplace else. Then, remembering the composer's bewildering words, do not move it around, not even a little bit. Cook the egg until the white part stops looking gleamy, but the yellow part is still bright and sunny. Some people like to flip the egg over at this point, presumably because they prefer eating something that looks speckled and greasy instead of something that looks like a sunrise. Do not trust these people. If they were composers, they would probably move the notes around. The third way eggs can be prepared is poached, a word which here means simmered and delicious, and the trick to poaching eggs is to add a bit of vinegar to the water. Vinegar is a strong smelling liquid which has a magical effect on a poached egg. To experience this magic, boil water in a small pot and then add a bit of vinegar. Then crack an egg into a small cup and, using a spoon, create a sort of whirlpool in the boiling water where the egg will go. The water cooks the egg and the vinegar makes it fluffy, so that eating a poached egg is like having a moon shrouded in clouds for one's breakfast. One of the truest things I know is that if you do not like a poached egg, there is something wrong with you. The fourth way eggs can be prepared is baked, and the trick to baked eggs is that you must burn your fingers. If you are a concert pianist or just enjoy pointing at people, you should have your baked eggs prepared by others, so that your fingers remain attractive and useful. The rest of us should turn on an oven to a high temperature and read a few pages of a book until the oven has heated itself up. Then, an egg can be emptied into a ramekin, a word which sounds like a nickname for your favourite sheep but is actually a small ceramic container which gets very hot in an oven. This is what you will burn your fingers on. Place the ramekin in the oven until the egg looks like something you want to eat. Turn off the oven and remove the ramekin, burning your fingers while you do so, even if you are wearing an oven mitt. Eat your baked egg while crying and nursing your fingers, knowing that it happens to anyone who prepares a baked egg. There is no trick to stop yourself from burning your fingers, only the trick of telling yourself that this terrible thing will certainly happen from time to time. The last way eggs can be prepared is boiled, and the trick to preparing a boiled egg is to remember that you will die. Boil water in a pot, and this is the world. Put an egg in the pot, and this is you. Prick it with a pin first, but do not worry, because the egg will not remember this, just as you do not remember your life before you were in the world. The hole made by the pin keeps the egg from cracking under pressure, which some eggs, and some people, occasionally do. Once the egg is in the pot of boiling water, you must watch over it, holding a slotted spoon. You are the figure of death. The egg does not know how long it will be in the world before the great spoon of death will lift it away. Perhaps it will be a long time because someone wants a hard-boiled egg, which is good at a picnic or to startle someone by tossing it at them. Or perhaps it will be a short time, three minutes perhaps, and enjoyed in an egg cup, a phrase for a cup which holds an egg. You can eat it with a tiny spoon, alongside a sliced pear, a piece of toast with goat's milk cheese, and a cup of tea with honey, and enjoy all this while reading, never knowing if it is your last breakfast, if today is the day you'll be spooned out of the world, but hoping that you, like the egg, are perfectly prepared. That was a very sweet meditation on eggs. I know.
1: The (laughs) ramekin. How did he capture that that's what it sounds like? <laughs> a nickname for your favourite sheep. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely a sheep's name. Yeah. Also, I don't like eggs, so me and Lemony have got some
0: issues. I knew this when I picked this but. Yeah. I personally feel well, that... Well, you're, you're a very suspicious person. <laughs> I,
1: well, yeah, I am. I'm definitely a bit fucking sketchy. But the, the bit about scrambled eggs, that sums up why I don't like eggs. I feel about all eggs the way that he feels about his scrambled eggs.
0: You make eggs for yourself though, and then you make them how you want them. No. Okay. I like eggs. <laughs> the only
1: time I accept eggs is when you make carbonara, and then it's alright.
0: Yeah. And that's just a yolk.
1: Yeah. <laughs> anyway.
0: Anyway. Okay, on to my last passage, and I think this is my favourite bit. Yay. Um, I decided to save the best at last. So Snicket is in the park and he's just explained that he likes to imagine what other people's conversations are when he sees people in the park. Mm -hmm. So he's just like made up this conversation between two people on a park bench, which I'm not going to read because it doesn't matter for this quote, but then this is what comes directly after that. Okay. He's called them Sylvia and Terry. Cool. I did not know what Sylvia and Terry whose names, of course, I was imagining, were really saying, but they were correct in what I imagined they were imagining about me. I was in fact thinking of a time, a long time ago, but in the exact same place I was standing. It is always strange to stand in a place where something happens to you long ago, particularly if the place has not changed much. The tree had surely grown a little, and the fence was perhaps more wind blown and the benches a little scruffier than they were on that happy day. But it looks more or less the same, I thought, and I knew this because I had a photograph of the time I mean, the time I was thinking about. The photograph was taken by someone I will never see again, and it shows me as a young man, so young that some people, to my annoyance, were still calling me a boy, sitting against the tree, my shoes resting on the gravel. You can see the bench in the background, where Sylvia and Terry were sitting, and indeed there are two people sitting on the bench in the photograph although I do not know who they were, so of course I do not know where those people are now, or if the goats in the photograph were the same goats I was watching in the meadow. It seemed unlikely, it was a long time ago. The meadow was the same, and it was still right there in the park with me, but I did not know where anyone else from the photograph was. Sometimes when I look at the photograph, I think that moment was perhaps my finest hour so long ago, and that I missed it because I did not know it then. I don't look very happy in the photograph, although it was a happy day. Perhaps the person holding the camera just caught me at a moment where I was not displaying my happiness, or perhaps I did not quite know I was happy. You do not always know you are happy when you are happy. Sometimes you can't really tell when you are happy until it is over and you are thinking about it later. Next to me, in the photograph, is a young woman. It is time here to say something about kissing, and remember you have been warned there are some kisses that ought to come with warnings. I don't mean the sort of kissing that is done in families where a child might get a kiss on the top of a head or the cheek with a good night. I don't mean a kiss blown into the air toward an applauding crowd or a departing boat or the kiss you might give an object if it is important and you dropped it and it didn't break or if it is just cold and smooth and feels good against your lips. You likely know the kind of kissing I mean and you know how it is done even if you've not done it yourself. It is done with two mouths, pressed together so that neither person can talk. It is a different kind of communication, this sort of kissing, than language. And although it is very important, practically nobody would be in the world if it weren't for kissing, it cannot last forever. Eventually you must take your mouth off the other person's mouth, and something is lost when the kissing has to stop. The kisser has become two people talking. It does not matter, the story of what happened at the base of that tree. It has nothing to do with philosophy or with my poisoned breakfast, so I will leave it out. Like kissing, it is perhaps too powerful for words, even one O on a person's name. It can be very powerful to write the name of a person you have kissed, or even just someone you wish you had kissed, on a scrap of paper where no one can see, or carved into the trunk of a tree where everyone can. It is even powerful just to write it down in your mind when you are alone, but it still does not matter, I thought to myself, because now I was alone there at the tree. When you are kissing someone, you feel perhaps that you will never be alone, but of course everyone is alone sometimes. It is lonely, sometimes, to be alone, but some people are good at being lonely. I am one of them. I am a loneliness savant, a word which here means that loneliness comes naturally to me so I'm quite good at loneliness, if I do say so myself. I like to think about lonely things, poems and philosophy and sad songs I admire, and places and people I do not know or will never see again. It is said in a song I admire by another associate of mine that the loneliest people in the whole wide world are the ones you're never going to see again, and this is the sort of thing I like to think about. Lonely thoughts, and lonely language, and lonely things that happened a long lonely time ago. Things that you tell yourself, walking on the gravelly ground under a tree that has been there for a long time, do not matter. Telling yourself that something does not matter is one of the loneliest things you can do. Because you only say it, of course, about things that matter very much. But often, and this is the lonely part, they only matter to you. It makes me want to cry. <laughs> I wish I could, like, tattoo that whole passage
1: <laughs> inside my eyelids.
0: Yeah. It makes me feel many things. <laughs>
1: yeah. Oh, wow.
0: Yeah. And that's me this week.
1: <laughs> Just going to bring back the my eternal Sabrina references, Sabrina Benham references, <laughs> to the line, the loneliest oh. word you know is
0: my name. Oh because I feel like that vibes with that passage. It does. (laughs) So yeah, that that is me this week. I love how different this book is to everything I've read besides other Lemony Snicket books. Mm. A lot of the tangents that I've read today are like the kinds that you find in a series of unfortunate events, which is why I think my love for that series has lasted so long because like when I was a kid I liked the story Mm -hmm. and I thought like the writing was cool, but as an adult I've like really grown to appreciate how cleverly and beautifully written it was. So yeah, I'm a big Snicket fan. I hope that everyone liked this taster of Poison for Breakfast. I've read so many excellent novels this year, but this tiny, tiny book, which was, I read it in the first week of January, is probably still my favourite book that I've read so far this year.
1: It does sound incredible. I just
0: think it's perfect.
1: <laughs> I am weirded out right now in this moment by realising obviously not in skill level comparison but in the concept how much Lemony Snicket has influenced my novel Mm. because I hadn't realised it before but a big part of my novel is tangents. Mm. Yeah. Like that's most of the content.
0: (laughs) Yeah well a big part of mine is, is writing so like when I was reading this I was like, this has given me so many ideas to add mm-hmm. to a book that was already about writing anyway. And yeah, I just I love his style so much. I love like the repetition, like yeah. I do that a lot in my writing, like say the same thing <laughs> again and again. And I just love that he does that. And yeah, I'm just oh, it's just so good.
1: I use the phrase "by which I mean" all the all time, the time yeah. in poetry. Yeah, which I feel like now I've realized is a direct lift from. <laughs> <sticker>. much, yeah. <laughs>
0: <sighs> right. Right. What are you infatuated with?
1: Oh I feel like I need a minute to recover from that. I know that. That was... I
0: genuinely like felt myself well enough to that last one there. That
1: was um a lot to hit me with right there. <laughs> I th- yeah. I feel like all writers are lonely and it is such a cliche. But yeah. I think like that idea of being good at being lonely is such a vibe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, I'm infatuated this week with a bit of a curveball, a short story. Nice! Which I don't actually think I've talked about on here before, a short story. I don't think you either of us have, no. So <clears throat> I have, however, talked about Lisa Cross-Smith on mm. here before. Um, she wrote Whiskey and Ribbons and This Close to Okay, both of which I have infatuated before. Yes. But my favourite book by her is her book of short stories, So We Can Glow. Mm. I read the hardback a couple of years ago when my friend Rhiannon lent it to me, mm-hmm. but I held off buying it until the paperback came out, because the paperback was going to come with a bonus story mm. called mm. Vincent, which features the protagonist of Lisa Crossmith's upcoming novel, oh. Half-Lone Rose. So first of all, I wanted to share this tweet from Crossmith about the short story and the book it's from, because I just wanted to introduce her vibe again. Yep. She tweeted... I write whatever I want. I wanted to write a book about a privileged 40-something black woman named Vincent who moves to Paris and starts kissing a 20-something man named after a wolf who wears short shorts and makes electronic music and it's coming out next spring. Wow. Yes. So, that's the vibe (laughs) and that's all you need to know in terms of plot. Cool. This story is very short. And by the way, I wouldn't say this is my favourite story in this collection. But trying to pick a favourite story in this collection was impossible. Yeah. So I figure since I'm probably going to end up talking about the novel, i just talk about the short story. Yeah, it's very short. It's only 13 pages, but I'm obviously not going to read the whole thing. So I'll start with one of the things that I'm always infatuated with in her writing, which is how quickly and sharply she puts us in the story. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to read the beginning. It is autumn in Paris, City of Light. Vincent's in her scarf, the one she always wears, wrapped twice like death. Loup takes his time gathering his things, the pale wooden pencil upon the table, the black sketchbook and the well-squeezed paints with bright, flat caps. Vincent watches him, keeps watching him, until he notices her and she looks away. Her friend Baptiste, who teaches modern art history and a course in colour down the hall, stands so close she can feel his breath. Café? he asks, and Vincent nods. She wants to know if Lupe is looking at her, but she can't bring herself to check. What if he isn't? She'll die on the spot in the almost empty classroom. Allons-y, Baptiste says, stepping in front of her, knowing she'll follow. She wants to turn and look at Lupe again. Is that what she'll do? To be crushed? No. The room blurs and she walks straight out, staring at the back of Baptiste's head. When he stops, she runs right smack into him. Sorry, I'm sorry, she says. Loop dog, you coming? Baptiste says, turning. Vincent continues staring ahead at the back of Baptiste's blazer this time. Velvet, the rich shade of the Bolognese, she's simmered all day in her slow cooker in her apartment. Vincent feels Loop behind her, smells his pencils. Yes, I'm coming, Loop says by her ear, and she files it away, somewhere hot and dark. Mm. So, I just think that's expertly done. yes. Vincent's in her scarf (laughs) as like an opener. Uh I feel like immediately that means something. She's a woman with a significant scarf. Mm -hmm. She's got a past. Luke's got pencils. There's a Baptiste. They've all got somewhere to be and it's just so quick. Yeah. But it doesn't feel rushed. Mm -hmm. So it's like you've come into the scene at exactly the right moment and not a moment before.
0: Yeah. Which is such a like... I quite struggle to write short stories. Because I I think I I like the build up. Yeah, I so love much. a preamble. So, but like that's something I love about short stories is how you just get chucked in. Like, mm-hmm. it's such a talent to write a short story where you already know everyone so quickly.
1: I know it's crazy. And also, with Lisa Crossmith, her writing does give me Taylor Swift vibes in <laughs> that the details are the key to it being believable. Mm. Like nothing in it is ever abstract, so everything is very relatable. Mm-hmm one of the other things that I love is that she's not afraid, as much as she does chuck you in to the action, she's not afraid to lose a moment building a character. And I'm going to read something to show what I mean. You think he's delicious. You want to eat him up like he's a cake, Baptiste says, pulling out his phone and texting, tippity tappity quick quick. I'm 44, she says. Baptiste looks at her, saying nothing. He's 23, she says. Nothing. I'm literally 21 years older than he is, she says. Baptiste begins texting again, silent. He's a child, Vincent says. Un baby, I could be his mother. Nothing from Baptiste. Vat a fair she smokes. Who are you texting? She mocks his face, his annoying fingers, his precious phone. Mina, he says, smiling slyly, his wife. Vat a fair she says again. Baptiste sisks her, kisses the air. This is how she and Baptiste always talk to one another. They share a birthday, same day and year, and they were insta-friends from the moment they met three months ago. Rarely does ten minutes go by without one of them roasting the other. Born to Ghanaian French parents, Baptiste grew up in Paris and is fluent in twee French and English. He is six foot three, skinny and strong, royally handsome, fantastically nerdy and stylish in a casual way. With his velvet blazer, he is wearing a pair of slim black pants that stop right at his ankles, no socks, and a pair of clean white standsmiths with navy blue heel tabs. Sometimes people actually stop him in the street to take his photo for their sartorial Instagram accounts and blogs. What he and Vincent participate in is friend flirting and nothing more. He loves his wife ferociously, and what Vincent feels for him matches up almost exactly with what she feels for her brother, a sugary adoration that smooths out any flaws. <laughs> I like that description. I like that description too, and do you know why I like it? Is because I remember when you did story writing at school, like primary school, and we'd always been told that that kind of aside was a bit amateur mm-hmm.
0: to be like,
1: mm-hmm. this is this character, and this is how tall they are, and this is what they look like, and blah 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 blah. Yeah, yeah. And obviously, in some cases, it can be, but. I think this is a nice version of, sometimes you can tell rather than show, especially in a short story, because you don't have time to show it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I like the feeling of, like, you know when someone's flicking through pictures of, like, their own memories, and they're, like, narrating it to you, Mm -hmm. and they're, like, telling you about all these people that you don't know?
0: Yeah.
1: It feels like that, like, you're sitting with, like, slides of this person's friends and she's just telling you about them I think it feels really intimate so that's nice another feature of her writing that I literally never get sick of and you saw there is the way that she gets really detailed about clothes Mm. it's something that I want to get better at with character is figuring out things like what they would wear and like
0: same actually what their house
1: would be like and that kind of thing so this is a very um, character revealing through clothes passage Mm. And also it's got, like, some good flirting. (laughs) I'm not giving you any uh, timelines for when any of this happens, by the way, because that would be a spoiler. Yes, okay. A woman called Vincent, Loop says, like a sigh, once they are alone. Loop, who smells like summer in the Kentucky forests that remind her of home. But how? Is there some sort of tree oil he's mixed with lemon water, spritzed and walked through? Do 20-something-year-old guys spritz? Maybe he rubbed it under his arms, into the bushes of hair he has there. She'd seen flashes of it, dark cinnamon and thickish, during the ungodly heatwave. And although she doesn't want to, she also remembers his white pocket t-shirt and shorts, the slip of brown cord tied twice around his wrist, the plain gold chain he sometimes wore around his neck, his summer shoes, night kill-shot twos with green grass swoops. I'm unable to stay long, I'm having people over for dinner. I'm making pasta, Vincent says. So far, 90% of the time, Loop only gets the snippy interpretation of who she is. Bah, nothing to be done. Is Baptiste coming? Mina? No, they have a thing. I don't have a thing and I love pasta, Loop says. It's not special. Everyone loves pasta. Can I have pasta with you for dinner tonight? He asks easily, like those words alone will jiggle her doorknob loose. He drinks his coffee, smokes her cigarette. His hair is wild and romantic, hanging past his earlobes. He tucks some curly strands behind one of them. His jacket is unbuttoned and Vincent glances at the loose collar of his shirt. It is oranged in the evening sun. His necklace twinkles like it's electric. Loop, I still can't believe Vincent is your real name, he says. A clatter inside the cafe. The crown of the waitress's head as she bends and stands, bends and stands. Vincent watches her through the window, digging the fingernails of her right hand into the palm of her left under the table. You keep telling me this, so call me Miss Wilde instead. What kind of pasta, Miss Wilde? Vincent finishes her coffee. The waitress appears, asking if she'd like another, and she says no mercy. Lupe says we to the refill, although his mug is still half full. Prostitute spaghetti. Well, a bastardised version, she answers him, the sauce already on her mind. She'd compared Baptiste's blazer to the Bolognese and her scarf to wasabi because she's hungry. She looks at Loop, sharply ravenous. Ah, Puttanesca, is his reply. Who are you having over for dinner? You're asking a lot of questions, she says after waiting too long. That's a problem, Miss Wilde, and that's another question. Cigarette and coffee. Vincent lights another. Her mug sits empty. I have to go, she says, not moving. You have a husband? I asked Baptiste and his answer was vague. You don't wear a wedding ring, Loop says. So not only do you ask me a lot of questions, but you ask Baptiste a lot of questions too. I do about you, sometimes. Vincent looks at him and mouths a word wow before asking, you like pasta in the style of a prostitute? I like prostitutes. I like prostitutes too, Vincent says defensively. Your husband will be at the dinner party tonight? It's his place also, Loup asks. Why do you assume I have a husband even when I don't wear a wedding ring? Well, you do wear this ring, he says, tapping the big cloudy moonstone on her index finger. Right, a ring. It's clearly not a wedding ring, but it is a ring. Wow, insightful. Yeah, I really have to go, Vincent says. Too rude for me to invite myself along? I'd like to come. Loop, je femme, feed me, please. I'll help. I'll earn my keep, he says from the other side of their table, taking a posture of prayer. (laughs) (laughs) And I just, yeah, I love that. I love that you have her remembering his clothes Mm -hmm. and then all that flirting and then him pointing out that he notices what she wears. Yeah. I just think it's a cool... It's, it's a cool detail. Yeah. And then you can imagine her, if she wears the scarf the colour of wasabi and a moonstone ring, immediately I know this woman. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so finally, I just have to shout out how French this story is. <laughs> Lisa Crossmith is not French, but I think she does spend a lot of time in Paris. Mm-hmm. None of the dialogue is, like, written in dialect, but when I read Luke speaking, I can hear the Frenchness. Yeah. Like, dripping out of him. Yeah. And just like listen to this and for context but out of context there's a naked man in the window across the way. Wow I'm starving she says, her mouth watering for the sauce. Loop still watching the naked man reaches into the bowl on the counter and starts peeling a clementine. I have one older brother, one younger sister she says. When Luke finishes peeling he sticks his thumb in, gets it loose, hands it to Vincent. She eats without saying thank you. What are their names? What's it matter? I only want to know because I like you. Give it a rest, you're twenty-three. I know how old I am. Nice of you to keep track, though. Mercy. Their names are Theo and Monet. Your parents love a theme. That they do. Are your brother and sister artists, too? Isn't everyone, somehow? I have a little sister, he says. And you like the Clementine? Good. I made it for you. Please, you only peeled it for me, Vincent fusses, like he was serious. Oh, I'll make you a clementine any time you want me to, St Vincent van Gogh. And then I'll paint a still life of the peels for you, frame the canvas, and even come over here and hang it on your wall, he says, scooping the curling rinds from the counter and pocketing them. You're stealing those? No, you gave them to me. Vincent is still eating, watching the naked man through the window. Do you think he's handsome? Lope asks, watching too. Not really, she says. Kind of? Maybe, kind of, if I got close, she says, shrugging. Doesn't he get cold, totally naked with the windows open like that? You're attracted to men? Sure I am, she says, with the currents of her heart screeching. Is drum guy one of your guests? One of your friends? Luke nods towards the window. Oh, right, of course, he's my best friend. Any moment he'll get dressed and be at my door. We go way back, mm-hmm. <laughs> I just feel like that whole bit where he's like, "I made you a Clementine." (laughs) Yeah, is so French (laughs) to be like, "I'll make you a Clementine anytime you want." (laughs) And I'd never really thought about that—how you could conjure an accent like that by like mimicking Mm. the humor, I guess, and like the cadence of the speech. It's just very well done. So I can't wait to read the novel. I'm very excited for that. And I thought, just as a little bonus for So We Can Glow, I hope I've not read this out in here before, so tell me if I have. Mm. But there's a short story at the very end of the original version of this book that I just, it's very short and I want to read it. It's called A Girl Has Her Secrets. This works best if you have a crush on JFK. JFK Jr. will work too. They were both handsome and intelligent and tragic. Icons. Icons. This will work best if you have a white robe and can sing a fine romance and diamonds are a girl's best friend in a breathy voice. Do it for the troops! You can wear one of those black slip dresses Marilyn Monroe used to wear. You can spend fifty dollars a week on a perfume like she did too. You can live in a hotel like she did. Don't marry or fall in love with the wrong men like she did though. These are only crushes. Don't let it go further. Admire his thick hair, how its old time parted on the side. A daguerreotype of a civil war soldier. Notice how different he is from you. He's leather in your lace. You can be as girly as a fluffy poodle and you don't have to apologise for it. You never have to apologise for anything feminine or for putting on your best red lipstick only to stay in the house, only to look out your window like William Carlos Williams' young housewife. That crushed, fallen leaf. The crushes can border on obsessions, but leave them there in your mind. Watch them, lust after them, fantasize about them, but never fall in love with them because if there's one thing you must know and learn is that this is not about love, this has never been about love. This isn't about diamonds either, or beauty or sexiness. This is about being a certain kind of woman, whoever that certain kind of woman is to you. This is one example, Marilyn Monroe, a petal, pale pink. You can also choose Betty Boop. Use your baby voice like baby Esther. Men are most powerless when a woman pretends to be vulnerable because she is pretending and they are not. Be Josephine Baker or Beyonce or Rihanna or Sylvia Plath and really aren't we all Sylvia? Brilliant, horny, misunderstood. Brains apt and punished for our sadness and obsessiveness as our girlishness widens and blooms and blooms and blooms until we fucking split all the way open. Well, here we go. Let's give them what they want. Our Rosewater Breath Secrets, these parlor tricks. (laughs) I have read that on here before, because aren't we all Sylvia Plath I've read out here before? Maybe. But it's still fucking good. It is good. So that was just a random extra. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. So, writing question this week was which piece of writing advice do you feel you understand now that maybe you didn't before?
0: Mm-hmm. The immediate one that came to me is actually one we've talked about before, and it's the advice that to be a good writer, you need to be a good reader. Because mm. I remember hearing that at uni and being like, yeah, I get that. Like, you need to know what good writing is to try and emulate mm-hmm. that. You need to learn how to like plot an arc and structure a story, and you need to know how... To make dialogue flow or like even what it should look like on a page like all of these practical things i was like cool yeah however in the past couple years i feel like i've experienced just how important reading is when you're writing i can tell when i'm not reading because my writing is either not its best or just like non-existent Hmm. (laughs) like when i'm reading great books i'm writing i think it's like partly a motivation Of like this person's written this book that I love I want to do that but it's also like inspiration because you find yourself like drawing down lines or like taking photos of lines that you love or like oh I really like that image how can I make that work in like my own way Mm -hmm. or maybe like you see something that you see is missing from your work or like a character does something that one of your characters does but they did it a different way so you can like puzzle out why you chose to write. To, wrote, to, to wrote. write what you wrote. So yeah, so I basically think when I first heard that, I took it as very practical advice. That like by reading, you're essentially getting a tutorial from authors on how to write, which mm. is true. I think that is valid. I think that's part of it. But I didn't realise until recently how big an impact it makes on my productivity and my creativity.
1: I like, thought that it was like you can't let your mind go stagnant. Which I guess is what we're saying, yeah. but like, I saw it as more of like an academic discipline mm-hmm. of like you have to be reading, so that your brain's always working. Yeah, not really for the reason. Like I didn't really think about the reasons why it had to work.
0: Yeah, so that so that's kind of it. Like it mm-hmm. was something that I thought I understood, and now I'm like, oh, so that bit was true, but like actually for me personally, I've realised how important it is. Nice. And um, what about you?
1: Mine was, I think we've talked about this before, but the advice that I thought I understood, and now I understand it way more, is kill your darlings. Mm. I think before I understood it as, like, sometimes you have to cut your favourite lines or parts if they don't fit or they interrupt the flow or whatever, and you just have to be ruthless. Yeah. But I feel like now I have a deeper understanding of, like, why that is. Because it's really saying there's a difference between expression and art. So
0: mm-hmm. like some
1: of those little phrases or words that you love that come out on the first go, you, I think for me anyway, I love them because usually I've finally expressed something that was in my brain, whether it's like an image that I like or a scene or an emotion mm-hmm. that I've, I've needed to get out. But I think what I'm starting to learn now that I've put some collections together, and this is definitely something that like when you're curating, you're like, ah, oh, is that expression is your raw material and then art is about crafting something which goes beyond just expression.
0: Mm-hmm, yeah.
1: I think when people say something isn't real art and it's often in reference to, like, you know, like modern art, Jackson Pollock type <laughs> things, mm-hmm. it's because often that looks more like raw expression where it's curated but it's not crafted yeah. in a way. And sometimes that's enough, like sometimes the curation is the point, especially when it's like visual art. Yeah. But I think especially with writing, crafting is about making something more of that initial expression. And a lot of the time when you come to do that, you have to scrap the bit that was so vital to get out. Yeah. Because it was only vital for you to understand what you were making and not for the piece of art. Yeah, And I think that's just taken so long for me to, like... It's something that, like, if anyone had told me that, I would have been like, that makes sense, but I wouldn't have really thought it was true.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: But now I'm like, oh, mm. yeah. And I think it just... When you become a bit more detached from your work, it's why it's good to leave it in a drawer and then come back to it mm-hmm. when it's not as, like, emotional.
0: Yeah, come back to it with fresh eyes. Yeah, because
1: yeah. then you're like, ah, that was for me. It doesn't, it doesn't belong there.
0: <laughs> yeah. I suppose as well, like, you can always reuse those things at some point.
1: And I usually do, to be yeah. fair. Like, I have my 100 list that I've talked about before, mm-hmm. and I'll put that in there. And you usually do find that you can find a home for that line or whatever, mm-hmm. but the a lot of the time, those darlings, for me anyway, like, if they're in a poem, they're, like, giving away the whole poem.
0: Yeah, but you had to write. But I had
1: to write it to know know what what the poem poem. was (laughs) about.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: But and I'm like, oh my god, that's such a perfect way to express this thing. Yeah. And like, but it ruins the poem. (laughs) Yeah. So I get you. What was your quickfire
0: favorite? My quickfire favorite is another podcast. Ooh. It's we're not fucking historians. Oh my god. (laughs) I can't wait to listen to this. Yeah, so this is hosted by writer and director Hazel Hayes and comedian Shane Todd. It's a podcast about Irish history by two people who aren't historians. So they do research, but the way they present the information is, like, laid back and comedic, and they'll maybe just, like, skip parts that they don't find interesting. And it's a mix of, like, real history and mythology, of which the lines often blur. Mm-hmm. Um as happens in lots of celtic mythology yeah and it's just so funny like i laugh at it all the time the episodes are only about 30 minutes so it's like quite nice and bite-sized some of my favorite episodes have been on the titanic the history of guinness and bonnie who's a pirate finn mccool and the giants causeway that titanic episode by the way <laughs> oh yeah because i was playing it in the kitchen it's
1: so funny (laughs) (laughs) it
0: was flown when it left yeah
1: oh good times yeah
0: so yeah i i've also not known most of the history either which i find really interesting because like i didn't realize this until i was listening to it i was like oh yeah we just don't get taught irish history at school no it's
1: just like yeah they're over there over yeah. the water, we don't really.
0: Yeah, which is mad because it's so close, and Irish history is so closely connected to Scotland and England mm-hmm. and Wales as well that I just find it mad that they were they were talking about things where I was like, I literally couldn't have told you that that was a thing that happened. But okay, you,
1: you know how we get taught about um, the Scottish Wars of Independence. Yeah. And I used to always think when I was little, like, but what were the Irish people doing?
0: Because <laughs> yeah. they were right there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so like yeah you're right we don't get taught anything about it yeah oh i also just listened to the episode on oscar wilde which is quite funny they didn't seem to like love oscar wilde as much as we do i think if you're irish (laughs) you're
1: probably sick hearing about him
0: yeah i think they just focused a lot on the um the underage boys Mm, well there is that i was like oh yeah (laughs) forgot about that but yeah because it was more about his life rather than his writing and obviously we love his writing, yeah we love
1: his writing, his writing we don't necessarily condone <laughs> all of the things in his personal life
0: but yeah no if you're looking for like a history podcast that isn't like heavy or just like information <laughs> it's well worth a listen it's really great yeah
1: <laughs> like i say i've not listened to like full episodes but i do every time that they put a new episode out and they post a clip of it yeah. on Instagram. I always watch it and I'm like, this is amazing. Yeah. looks so it's
0: good. It's so good. Yeah. It just makes me laugh. thinking about it. <laughs> what is your quickfire favourite?
1: Mine is actually an old favourite, but mm-hmm. I've been coming back to it loads this week, so I thought I'd shout it out. Yes. It's a song by Lisa Mitchell, who is an Australian singer-songwriter, and it's from her 2009 debut album, <laughs> Wonder. Mm-hmm. She was, I think she was on like Australian Idol or Australia's Got Talent or something way back in the day, Mm -hmm. but she never won. She never, I don't think she got very far. Yeah. And then she like brought out this album. Anyway, it's called Love Letter. I used to love this album, but I would normally skip this song Mm -hmm. because it's like slower and it's a bit more Mm avant-garde. She's got ones that are like, it's all kind of folk indie, but there's ones that are more poppy and then there's ones like this that are just weird. Mm -hmm. The music in the song, to give you an idea of it, it sounds like a rough recording of a music box with, like, the spinning ballerina, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: but in the background of that, there is a sound which sounds like a record spinning when there's nothing playing. Mm. So, it sounds, like, the way that it makes me feel is, like, you're in a room with really thick curtains.
0: Right, okay. And it's
1: dusty, you know what I mean? And so I'm just going to read out the first verse and chorus because... I think the fact that I listened to this album a lot as a teenager explains a lot about me. Okay. (laughs) This is how it goes. I'd like a flat white, a day off, pale skies and a real kiss. Inside an old house by the seaside you can take off my blouse. But take it from me. I'm disorderly and you'd be off better writing someone else your love letter. Because I'm always on the road. And of course I want to know you better. But you know the way it goes. A telegram's no substitute when it comes to living proof. So go on and write somebody else. Somebody else. Anybody. Your love letter.
0: <laughs> Why is real kiss so sad? <laughs> <laughs> Why is it
1: a day off, pale skies and a real kiss that makes me so yeah, sad? Yeah. I'm like, oh, <laughs> oh, oh. And I also like, because we were talking, me and one of my friends were talking the other day about, like, long-distance relationships. Mm -hmm. And I think that a line I really like is when she says, of course I want to know you better. Because we were talking about, like, when you like someone and you don't really know if they feel the same and if you can't see them all the time. Yeah. You're like, oh, do do
0: they? Yeah.
1: I just think it's a sweet line in light of that conversation. She's like, of course I want to know you better. Yeah. But you know, then she goes, but you know the way it goes. And I'm just Aww. like, oh, oh, Lisa. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it's a really weird, but it's a really sweet album. It is very 2009. I think mm. if you listen to it now, it's pretty dated. Yeah. But yeah, I'd recommend. Nice. There's a song on it called Oh Hark, which is extremely gothic and it's about rising from the dead. Oh, and like crows pulling at your hair and like getting out of a grave. I think you'd enjoy that. Nice. Yeah, <laughs>
0: sounds like my bike. <laughs> do you have a rip, for us?
1: I do. I thought my stuff was quite romantic themed this mm. episode. So to go on with an extreme version of a romantic theme, I thought I would track down the world's first known love letter.
0: Oh, is this gonna make me cry? <laughs> um, no, I don't think so.
1: <laughs> so obviously, as with anything like this, it depends how you define it. Yeah. The oldest love letters in England that were like posted and sent mm. come from about the fourteen hundreds. Mm-hmm. But the oldest written down love letter is way older. Mm-hmm. It's from two three nine B C. In ancient Mesopotamia, there was this Sumerian king called Shusin. And he would marry a new bride every year, but it was chill because I think they're all like, they were all alive. They weren't like killed (laughs) or anything, but it was believed that every time he married, it would bring fertility to the land and the people. I see. So it was like a real fun thing if you were the bride and Mm. obviously loads of people got a chance. (laughs) So this love poem was found inscribed in a clay tablet and it's thought to have been written by one of the brides. The Sumerians, for anyone that doesn't know, invented writing. So it's likely that this woman was one of the first people ever to write a love poem. And translated, it roughly reads, now you have to just remember this was back in the day where like, we didn't have feminism. (laughs) (laughs) But it's very sweet. It says, bridegroom, dear to my heart, goodly is your beauty, honey sweet. Lion, dear to my heart, goodly is your beauty, honey sweet. You have captivated me. Let me stand tremblingly before you. Bridegroom, I would be taken by you to the bedchamber. You have captivated me. Let me stand tremblingly before you. Lion, I would be taken by you to the bedchamber. Bridegroom, let me caress you. My precious caress is more savoury than honey. In the bedchamber, honey filled. Let me enjoy your goodly beauty. Lion, let me caress you. My precious caress is more savoury than honey which by the way love that she's like I'm amazing yeah yeah (laughs) like (laughs) we love that and also Honey has been sexy since the beginning of time Mm. there you go so there you are
0: (laughs) nice I like it I like it too (laughs) I feel like that needs to be like a novel where it's like it's like there's been like I don't know like 13 wives or something Mm. and it's like the 13th and then like she doesn't get pregnant. <laughs>
1: dun, dun, dun. dun dun dun. Yeah, but he like really likes her, so mm. he just it's like, oh man. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe she has to like steal a kid or something. <laughs> yeah. There's definitely a novel in this. Um, it just like I'm like, oh man, I forgot that, like we've we're in a time where there's not really any unironic, love poems to men, <laughs> mm. from women. <laughs> Because it's just like, (laughs) ooh, But I quite liked it. It was very sweet. I was like, oh yeah, we do actually like them. We do. (laughs) They're a problem, but we really like them.
0: Yeah.
1: (laughs) So what's your insight?
0: My insight is quite short, but basically I just wanted to read the Lemony Snicket quote that has stuck with me my entire life. (laughs) Oh my god, yes, please. I think... I didn't double check this, but I think it's from The Reptile Room, which is the second book in the Unfortunate Event series. And it's just one of those quotes, like we were talking about earlier, that explains something very deep so simply, but so eloquently. And you're like, why didn't I ever think of that? Ever think of that or come up with that or whatever. I just think it's great writing. So it's this It's a curious thing, the death of a loved one. We all know that our time in this world is limited. And that eventually all of us will end up underneath some sheet, never to wake up. And yet it is always a surprise when it happens to someone we know. It is like walking up the stairs to your bedroom in the dark and thinking there is one more stair than there is. Your foot falls down through the air and there is a sickly moment of dark surprise as you try and readjust the way you thought of things.
1: Oh, It's just so sad. It is so sad, but but it is exactly what grief feels like. Yep. So, well done, Lemony. I know. And that's
0: in a kid's book. (laughs) I know. (laughs)
1: Yeah. Kid's books are the saddest, though.
0: Yeah. I don't think I said, by the way, about Poison for Breakfast, but that is, like, a middle grade, like, Mm. well, it's pretty ageless, but it's, like, it is a kid's book.
1: Yeah. Kids can read it. Kids can read it.
0: so that is us this week if you have any comments or questions and our email is infatuatedpodcast at outlook.com we also have social media which is linked in the show notes along with everything we've talked about today including the infatuated mix which has all the music we mentioned and it's gonna have this real weird song thanks for (laughs) me (laughs) true and yeah please rate and review us on your podcast apps because that helps get the podcast out
1: there please do and also tag tag some authors (laughs) pack some authors and see if they want to listen to us too that would be nice that would be nice (laughs) bye bye